What's up, queens? Welcome to the Female Dating Strategy Podcast, the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. I'm Ro. And I'm Savannah. So we wanted to start off this episode with a little state of the pod update. So as people may have noticed, we're down a host and we've been down a host for a couple of months because of Lilith's departure. We're not sure if she's going to return given the state of her health and some new updates in her life. And we have also, your lovely host here, Rowan Savannah, had some life changes recently that has made it a little bit more difficult for us to do some of the pod activities that we're doing really consistently. Most importantly, like getting regular recording time. And it just has to do with our schedule as well as like being able to do War Room on Sunday. So we are looking at a couple of options and feel free to give us feedback on this. One of the things that we were thinking of is like to bring on another host, possibly two new hosts, either replace Lilith or replace us uh, or one or both of us, at least intermittently while we handle some of our more personal things that are going on. It's not really about replacing people. It's more that we want to ensure that we can continue to provide consistent podcasts because we know how much it benefits you all, you know, not to toot our own horn that we're so special, but you know, we know that the podcast is enjoyed by many of you and also so that the podcast can have a fresh perspective as well. Because I think after almost two, three years of doing this, I sometimes feel like I've become a broken record. At least I speak for myself anyway. And so it isn't just a case of bye guys, see you later. Ro and I, we will continue to work on other really exciting projects behind the scenes. But it's also that, yeah, essentially, like Ro said, our bandwidth is becoming really, really stretched. And we hate, you know, not being able to give you consistent content because that's the least you will deserve, at least for, for listening to us and for sticking with us throughout this whole thing. Plus, I think we need some new perspectives. I think without Loth here, that, you know, obviously the three of us, we each provided a different perspective, um, a different type of balance, a different type of nuance. And I think we want to shake things up just to make sure the podcast stays relevant and stays fresh to people who are still out there in the dating scene and have new perspectives, see new things coming on the cultural horizon. So, and there's always the thought that like, one or all of us might either age out of the podcast and or like have a life change such that it would not make sense for us to do it as much anymore. So we're kind of looking now to start that transitory process. We want FDS to keep going. <laughs> we don't want it to go away. Because again, FDS is an idea. It's a brand. It's not really like it doesn't necessarily just belong to Savannah and I. It's, it's a concept about how to maximize female benefit. So with that, we're looking to bring in uh, someone else who would like to be a guest host maybe for some time. And then if we feel like they're a good fit for the pod and the audience likes them, a permanent host, there is like a weekly commitment aspect of it. So as well as like, you know, if you want to engage with people. So that's a just prefacing that, that for people who are interested in the podcast, like it's not like something that you can do once and then kind of bounce. It is kind of a grind at times. So just letting people know if, if they were interested to go ahead and uh, reach out to us. So if you're interested in possibly hosting this podcast, contact us at contact at thefemaledatingstrategy.com. That's contact at thefemaledatingstrategy.com. And just give us your pitch and why you're interested and why you think you make a good host and let us know. So so once again, apologies for some of the inconsistency. Um, first of all, we had some tech issues as well. So literally, we tried to schedule a couple of interviews and our normal recording software was not working. Yeah, they just really hated us for the past eight weeks. We couldn't record for like two weeks either. Yeah. We want to make sure we're getting the kind of quality contents you want, but we're also going to try to transition so that we can also work on other things and take care of some more personal things. So sorry, we haven't been able to do 
War Room, which I did. We sent a message out on Patreon for our Patreon subscribers. It's just like, it again, have not had the bandwidth. And there's going to be some challenges on getting some of the bonus content out for a little bit until we can get some of the scheduling things in order, which is going to be difficult. So that's the update. Hope people aren't too disappointed, but we just wanted to give you some transparency about what's going on. So should we hop into the episode now? Yes. So today, going back to the requests we've had to cover, I guess, FDS 101 in more detail. So we've had quite a few people say, can we cover aspects of the handbook, which I think is a very good idea because it's one thing reading the handbook, but it's also sometimes really good to dissect them. And I'm a huge fan of being critical of concepts, even FDS concept, because what I think is important with FDS is to make sure that if you are applying any FDS concepts to your life, that it makes sense to you and that you go into everything with your eyes wide open. So everything FDS says, it has its pros and it has its cons as well. And to be able to utilize FDS strategies effectively, you need to be able to understand the pros and cons of what you're doing so you can strategize more effectively and mitigate against the cons so you get the maximum female benefit. So one of the concepts that is becoming increasingly more contested, I would say, is the concept of hypergamy. And this came up a lot on the FDS subreddit. We will link a a post in the subreddit that this episode is going to be based off. That's basically talking about the concept of hypergamy. For those who are unaware, like hypergamy, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is essentially the action of either marrying or forming a sexual relationship with a person of a superior sociological or educational background. Generally speaking, though, when people talk about hypergamy, they really basically mean like marrying up or dating up, not so much just having, you know, sex with somebody in a different social class. Yeah. So hypergamy, as it's traditionally defined, is more or less the Cinderella story, right? You get plucked from relative poverty and obscurity into the lap of luxury by a Prince Charming who has all the means, resources, etc. And a lot of women practice, you know, some variation of this, meaning they want to marry a man who has more means than themselves in order to take care of themselves and their families, secure their future, etc. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, hypergamy is a theory of, you know, mating that's been around for you know, possibly centuries. So for example, the royal family, (laughs) our best friends, the royals do that very well, hypergamy. But it's also done even within different social classes as well. It's not necessarily the Cinderella marries the rich man. It can also be within, you know, social stratas that hypergamy happens as well. It also contrasts a bit with another theory of mate selection, and that's a theory of assortative mating, which basically says that people tend to date and marry somebody who is in a similar social class and looks class to themselves as well, which I think makes sense because even if we look at the people around you, so look at your friendship group, generally speaking, people tend to be friends with people who are from a similar educational background, who have a similar income. And so that theory seems to make more sense on a day-to-day. But today we are talking about hypergamy, in part because, especially on, you know, sugar baby TikTok and just general social media, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about hypergamy. And there is a lot of talk about the concept, not enough attention being paid to some of the potential pitfalls of hypergamy as well. 
Yeah, because it's not all sunshines and roses and happily ever after. And I think that a lot of the high programmy gurus, especially the ones on YouTube that have built their whole career about like dating, marrying up, they basically tell they tell you how to get into that situation, but they don't really tell you like uh, how to protect yourself and also meaning like how to snag a rich guy. And a lot of times their advice is just bad. But even if it's pretty good, most of the time it's yeah, it's nonsense. Oh, it's horseshit. Because a lot of the times as well, like, no tea, no shade, but a lot of the women talking about hypergamy, they are sex workers or sugar babies. Now, if you're getting paid by a man for sexual favours or, you know, sexual acts or whatever, or being sexually exploited, that's not the same as being hypergamous at all, because your social standing has not changed. And if anything, it pushes you, it essentially pushes you further down the social hierarchy due to things like stigma towards sex workers as well. So a lot of the advice that they give is not only nonsensical, but it will also, it's essentially designed to attract the kinds of men that will pay for sex workers, which is not the kind of men that a woman who is serious about hypergamy actually wants. Exactly. So sometimes they're just teaching you how to be a high price escort and not actually hypergamous. And there is a distinct and marked difference. So moving on to why hypergamy is beneficial for women. So first of all, FDS 101 is that we don't stand a shame. So if you are a Cinderella looking to find your prince, we would fully encourage you to do that because one of the benefits of, you know, women striving to have higher standards for the men that they date and that they marry is that competition for mates is only a positive thing it will encourage men to be better because we've seen where lowering our standards as a female class has gotten women. It's literally gotten us to where the bar is literally in the Mariana Trench. Whereas if, you know, women were generally striving to be hypergamous, you know, the bar would raise across the field, essentially. And competition for mates is a good thing as well. And it's a natural thing too. You know, men love to talk about what's natural and what's not, but if we believe in a theory of evolution, survival of the fittest, it's only the people with the best genes and the most resources that were able to pass their genes down and reproduce as well. I mean, in theory, it should work like that. But sometimes it's just whatever men are the most murderous and rapey, to be honest, like, <laughs> in a perfect world, like female mate choice would be the primary driver of how men or how the species evolves. But you know, things like rich men who are very abusive and exploitative of others, basically just being able to do whatever they want, including impregnating women who are below their social class and basically never taking care of those kids. It's the whole, um, if you ever watch Game of Thrones, actually don't even watch Game of Thrones, watch like any professional athlete, right? Like they have like, oh gosh, yeah. Politicians, any man who's powerful, a lot of them have like a quote, respectable wife. And then Sometimes they have secret children, outside children of their marriage or anything like that. So you just see that there's ways that men behave who are of a social class and the way that has historically happened because they have the power to do that is to keep passing things on that way, passing their genes on that way, hoping to hook women who are dazzled by their fame or fortune or whatever they have, but never, ever actually taking them seriously. Yeah. And I've often said like a lot of the societal norms and cultures, such as things like religion, things like marriage, they've essentially removed, 
you know, hypergamy, I think, artificially from the equation because they've basically acted like affirmative action for men. Because if it wasn't for some of these institutions, most men would not be getting a partner, basically. But that's patriarchy. And, you know, people talk about, especially critics of hypergamy, talk about how it's not fair. But FDS, we have never maintained that the dating world is supposed to be fair. FDS tends to get you know, criticised for being like, well, you're not about equality. I'm like, well, no, we're not about equality. We're about equitable outcomes for women and maximum female benefit. If you've been listening to the podcast this long and you still think it's about equality, I don't know what the fuck to say to you because, like, you're <laughs> you're very slow. <laughs> you don't give a shit about equality. This is a female dating strategy. This is for us to fucking win. I don't actually care about equality. Like, let men give a shit about what's beneficial for them they have been they will they are never going to stop doing things that solely benefit them at our expense exactly exactly and that goes on to the next point i was actually gonna make which you know wrote you know nicely touched on is that men also practice hypergamy but it's a lot more socially acceptable again if you step outside and look at the average couple even just looks wise you will often find that the woman is substantially more attractive than the male then if we look at the stats around a university admissions around income we are seeing that women are actually doing better than men generally in education in the workforce you know women are becoming more independent and so actually you know men also practice hypergamy they often want to have you know the best looking women on their arm as well just look at the whole concept of the starter wives where these especially male celebrities they will have a wife who is with them at the very beginning when they're struggling and then the minute they make it they ditch her and go for the woman that they really wanted this whole time because they can now get her because they're more famous they've got more money or whatever you know so men practice hypergamy all the time and it goes back to this whole concept of fairness and one thing i've always maintained is that if a guy says that you are not being fair that's actually when that you as a woman are actually you know being fair to yourself and you should continue to advocate for yourself in that direction because generally speaking what men tend to define as fair or isn't fair basically what they mean is oh you're not putting you know my best interests you know, first, because they tend to expect that women will put male interests or the man's interest above their own as well. So, you know, so in actual fact, if a guy says you're not about equality or you're not being fair, that's actually a compliment because what he's saying is that, you know, you are now advocating for yourself. And then finally, another point for hypergamy is that as a woman, there are very few, if any, benefits to dating a man who is not doing at least as well as you are. And then another reason why hypergamy is also beneficial and I think should be mandatory for all women is that there are very few, if any, benefits to dating a man who is not doing at least as well as you are. I came across quite a shocking statistic earlier on today, which I will link below, in that women who earn more than the men, so they're the breadwinner in the family, they are actually subjected to more domestic violence as well. So there isn't really any social benefit to a woman dating a guy who is not doing at least as well as she is. Doubly so, if you are a woman who is planning on starting a family, it's very, very important that you vet your partner well and ensure that they are able to provide, especially if you're planning on, you know, dropping out of the workforce temporarily to raise the children, or just generally don't want to be in a situation where you are, you know, the main or the higher earner, and you also have to look after the kids as well. And so there just isn't really any social benefit to women not trying to, I guess, 
you know, date up, so to speak. But I don't even like using the term date up when it comes to women, because even the richest man, they still benefit from having a woman on their arm in a way that isn't the same for a wealthy woman, just having a guy on her arm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean... The thing with men is like, you can see the difference between like when women get very wealthy and when men get very wealthy, like men want to have like a collection of women and women basically get wealthy so that they can set boundaries in place about how they deal with men. So it's like the opposite in some respects. And a lot of it is because a lot of men don't come with a lot of benefits outside of financial. And the men that do have the financial means, if they can't pull pussy, nobody cares, right? (laughs) Yeah. That's true. That's like the sad part about being a man. It's so true. Like you could be extremely wealthy. I mean, look at some of the tech geniuses will say, quote, quote, and heavy, heavy, heavy quotation marks. But like some of the heads of the tech industry are places, you know, where they're clearly they're billionaires, multi-billionaires, and nobody really thinks these guys are cool, right? They're more or less like they went to the right schools. They're very smart. They capitalize an opportunity at the right time. But I mean, no one looks at Elon Musk and thinks he's like sexy, right? (laughs) At least I hope not. (laughs) Well, it's like nobody looks at Mark Zuckerberg and thinks he's like sexy, right? So literally most of these Silicon Valley fucks are paying for it. This come out multiple times that a lot of these guys who are these super nerds, they come out of these Ivy League schools or even elite schools, but even and they have all the money they have all of the generational wealth some of them and even that's not enough to overcome like they're just rank unattractiveness to women so they pay sex workers right so a lot of the biggest clients of sex workers and a lot of sex workers who have said that they've made you know comparatively a lot of money uh specifically service that clientele right because of the fact that they're just like these massive fucking geeks who yeah women don't really want to fuck them women will fuck them for money right but they're not the type of dudes that like women would throw themselves at if they saw them right it's totally different than like a pro athlete for example like where a lot of those guys are fit and handsome if you look at a soccer player a football player a basketball player i mean they look physically fit a runner you know a swimmer something that would make a woman like look at them and be like oh he's totally fuckable like yeah exactly having like pasty skin uh vitamin d deficiency and like bulgy eyes because you only drink coffee all day and like yellow stained tooth and while sitting behind your laptop all day is not making women want to fuck you and it's just true like, <laughs> <so> <laughs> like those guys are the guys with all the money but they're also just not like that attractive Yeah. And even someone like Zuckerberg, like, I can totally see him just not being taken seriously if he wasn't, you know, married with kids. And even though he is actually married with kids, he recently, like, posted a picture of, you know, him and his family, Priscilla, and Priscilla is average looking. And I don't think it's a bad thing to say someone is average looking. Most people are average looking. And he would just absolutely clowned. Like, it's just... You know, so can you imagine if he didn't have a woman at all? Like, people just wouldn't take him seriously. Or other men wouldn't take him seriously as a man, even though he's literally one of the richest people in the world. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with the way... She's average. I'm average. Like, I'm average looking, and that's why. But she's still better looking than him. That's what kind of kills me about this entire exchange. It's like, they're acting like, oh, I can't believe his wife looks like that. I'm like, I can totally believe his wife looks like that. She still looks better than him. Like, looks-wise, he's still married up. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> she's still better looking than him. Yeah, exactly. Financially, obviously, she married up, but also to think she's a doctor, right? So she's not a slouch and she's not like an idiot. She's not someone who like needed Mark to be successful in life, right? 
No, she was a doctor. Like, she's got, like, two degrees, like, two PhDs or something like that. She's highly successful in her own right as well. I'm more or less looking at the critics like this who, first of all, just kind of don't get that. Nobody in Mark Zuckerberg's circle who is of similar wealth is going to fuck, not even of similar wealth, anybody who had money is going to fuck Mark Zuckerberg just for the money because he's just not cute and he's weird, right? I don't say it's impossible for these guys to get laid or anything because it definitely is not, especially there's just more than enough women who are money motivated who will like pretend to like these guys. But like on some level, they know that and they resent those women. And that's why it's really, really hard to be hypergamous in the way that a lot of these gurus teach you about like, oh, just flatter his ego or like be the type of feminine woman that a man wants is that a lot of these guys like, they have some self-loathing when they feel like they have to pay for it. Even if, <laughs> even if. Yes. Yeah. Could he get a better looking woman? Yes. If he's willing to pay up. Will she have the same qualities that likely his wife brings to the table? Probably not. Like if she's of similar intelligence, has like, you know, any type of pedigree herself, she might look at someone like Mark Zuckerberg, like, yeah, okay. If she was really, really money motivated, but like most women are going to balance him being physically repulsive and having to fuck him for the rest of their life. <laughs> That's very good if physically repulsive. Imagine if you're like, you get married for the money and then for the rest of your life, you got to pretend to want to fuck this guy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. That's why a lot of women wouldn't do it. And that's why a lot of women like get to a certain level of wealth and they're like, okay, how much money they have to make trade-offs between attractiveness and money, right? And most women try to find the guy they most want to fuck who's like within their social class, right? Because like if you go up in social class, sometimes you have to date down and looks and like that is sex work. That is literally a chore and a job. <laughs> so just look at William and Kate, even look at Harry and Meghan, like the looks match just isn't there. Let's be real. I mean, to be fair to William and Kate, it maybe was there once upon a time, but it's certainly not there now. But yeah. <laughs> Kate probably still finds William attractive based on like legacy vibes, like before the hairline went, like back when he was pretty cute. He had like a couple of year run and then he got married when that luck ran out. Back when he was Diana's son, yeah. And then he just turned into Mount Batten, Windsor, Saxe, Coburg, Gotha. Even all of his rumored mistresses are very, like, average, right? Even then, it's not, even with all his power and wealth, it's, like, there's not, like, just scores of women who are even Kate's level of attractiveness who want to, fuck like, sign up for that. <laughs> oh, no, no, not at all. Like, and in fact, it was, as I've touched on before, like, William, Charles, Harry, they struggle to find girlfriends because no one wants to deal with them. So even their money oftentimes can't save them, which is why basically Charles had to settle for Diana. And I mean, settle in like the, in the royal language, not that he settled for her. She was way out of his league anyway. William dumped Kate like randomly in around 2007 and went back to her because nobody else wanted him. And like Harry quickly married Meghan. And it's because these guys know that even with all their money and power, they're still not wanted by the sorts of women that they want. Like they are rejected in their own social class, if not social classes below them, because they just come with so much baggage. And I guess like, <laughs> you know, the looks and the money isn't enough to save them either. So I feel like that's, yeah, and I don't feel like that is unique to the royal family. I think that in general, people of a certain social class tend to marry within their certain social class. And if they're marrying down in class, it's usually because there's something wrong with them such that women of their own social class are not that interested. And also, it just goes to show that even men who marry down in quotation marks, they still massively benefit. So if Issa or family is an example, right, you know, Charles massively benefited because he got an heir and he 
was able to, to basically, I guess, cement his, you know, next status as king because the last thing they would have wanted is to have an unmarried bachelor as potential king of England. Like, same with, you know, William and same with Harry. Like, you know, the marriages that they enter into with these women, it almost seeks to legitimise their position in the royal family and they massively benefit from that. I mean, even Harry's friends knew that he was punching with Meghan because they were like, you know, how did you manage to get her? Like, people say that, oh, you know, she's now a royal, she should be grateful, but it honestly seems like he married up, like, way beyond what he should have married into. Yeah, I think everyone was like, wow, what a miracle you pulled her. But when you look at Meghan Markle's dating history, it seems like she likes guys that are... I mean, like, when I look at Harry, he doesn't look significantly less attractive or even more attractive than the men she's dated in the past. So I think that's just her lane. That's just kind of what she likes. So he lucked up. Yeah, 100%. And even though she is older than him, she looks younger than him by quite a few years as well. So anyway, that's my little of royal insertion. And the next half of this episode will focus on the common pitfalls of hypergamy, because whilst I don't think it's a bad thing, especially if you are a working class woman or you come from a working class background or you come from a background where you aren't from the class that you are trying to get into, it's really important to be aware of certain things. So the first one is that, I don't know how it is in the US, Rose, so correct me if I'm wrong, but in the UK, we have a very, very rigid class system and it is very, very difficult to actually meaningfully change your social class. People think that If you marry somebody in a different income bracket, you are automatically in a higher social class. And I disagree with that. Like when it comes to the class system, I will admit I have quite a Marxist view on things, which people might disagree with. But essentially, I just feel like just because you earn a lot of money, that doesn't necessarily mean you are in the middle or the upper classes. That's just not how class works, especially if you didn't come from money originally. Well, I think it's the difference between the UK, which is an extremely old country versus the US, which is a relatively young country. So I think because we're relatively young, we don't have as many like, quote, old money type of entrenched social class system. So I think the way that it's thought of in the States is more like A list, B list, C list. That can change based on the whatever sphere you're working in. But I wouldn't say the classes are nearly as rigid as as Europe. In fact, I wouldn't say it is at all. And that being said, like there is we do have some old money type people, but at the same time, like an A-list person is an A-list person. For example, like if A-list in like sports would be Tom Brady, LeBron James, trying to think of someone else. And then in music, it would be like A-list in music would be like Beyonce or Rihanna or Taylor Swift or trying to think of a man who's an A-list musician that's a man. I'm maybe losing it right now, but someone who's been like very, very popular for a very, very long time and very, very established. And then in in the political circles, obviously, it's anybody who uh, served in the White House would be A-list. But a lot of those people have like working class backgrounds and then work their way up. But a lot of people in those spheres have working class backgrounds and then work their way up. There's a second sort of class structure in the United States, and that's very educational related. There's a class system in the United States that's stratified by education. That is not immediately apparent. But one of the things that's been very controversial right now when it comes to like elite school admissions is how much of elite school admissions come from legacy admissions, which is people who come from people who are major donors who had uh, parents or great grandparents who attended that school. And a lot of that is that's sort of an entrenched class structure where 
yes, they allow people who are very, very smart, but like the vast majority of admittance have some kind of connection to the Ivy League already. So meaning my father went to Harvard and my father's father went to Harvard, etc. And even though their kids are dumb as fuck and probably could never get there on their own merits, they're sort of ushered in because they want to kind of keep the elite, want to date the elite. They want to give jobs to the elite. They want to keep that class structure going. They want to have certain soft skills that are only present in their little enclave of culture. So in that respect, it can be hard because if you're not a person who comes from money, you have to be extremely smart and you have to have some kind of hook to get into one of these Ivy League schools. And then from there, you have to get connections to have the right kind of jobs. Because even people who have Ivy League degrees, sometimes they've said like, it's been hard for me to get a job, even with my Ivy League degree, because I didn't have a connection, right? So if you majored in like philosophy, once again, like the scrotiest major possible, but let's say you (laughs) majored in philosophy at like Harvard, but your parents are working class immigrants, you'll struggle to find a job. Whereas like a kid who majored in philosophy at Harvard, but his dad is the VP at a bank, he's going to have whatever job he wants, right? His degree is solely a, a piece of paper that they get to justify that he's not a complete idiot, even though arguably it's not the case and then give them the job that they were already destined to have. So like in some respects, like the university system is supposed to be the equalizer. The university system in the past generation or so, I think with the inflation of, first of all, the inflation of the amount of universities and the amount of cost around the universities, that it's really become like a place that rich people send their kids to justify giving them rich people jobs. And it's a little bit harder to be hypergamous or upwardly socially mobile. Not impossible, but like if you don't have already connections, like you basically have to take some kind of degree that's in high demand, like a STEM degree. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And so because traditionally as well, speaking of universities, it actually used to be a way for women to meet men to marry. It was a thing in the UK where yeah lots of I guess you know families they would specifically send their daughters especially when back in about the 70s or 80s when fewer women went to university it was almost like a running joke that they would pick the universities that were the most male dominated and send their daughters there to get married basically to find a husband to do husband shopping with quite a bit of success actually given the number of relationships Yeah, once again, works really well if you already come from that social class. Like this is where, again, the hypergamy gurus sometimes fail. It's like, okay, if you want to be hypergamous, it is always better to try to build your own platform. It is much harder for working class women to do it. So the easiest way I would say, quote, is to try to achieve it through education. And it's not even that easy. Obviously, like education is very competitive. And then try to network or rub elbows with people who are established and, you know, polish yourself such that you can like basically wash off your working class stink and try to network with them. But like just from experience and having seen, you know, who ended up with who ended up marrying who and what and why most of these guys, especially the old money guys, like they married women already in their social class. Like they're very unimaginative in the way that they choose a spouse. And it's partially just like social acceptance of their family, as well as like understanding that generational wealth is built through stability in marriage and shared values, right? Because like, if you've just had a silver spoon your whole life, it can be really difficult to talk to people or understand people who don't, especially if it could have been like your dad that completely screwed that person's family over, right? So just looking at it that way, understanding like hypergamy is more likely if you put yourself in that social group via education or work experience if you can, but it's also not guaranteed. And it also comes with some pitfalls. 
And it's also about there's a difference between because for some reason, a lot of the advice I'm seeing around hypergamy, it seems to center around just being, you know, near rich people. So proximity. So if you get a job in a gentleman's club or if you go to a golf club or if you hang out at Harrods or, you know, whatever. And it's like, this is not going to work because especially if somebody is in a higher social class, they are very, very good at compartmentalizing people. So they will compartmentalize you into the help and the help is what you will say. And that is how they will perceive you. They're not going to perceive you as one of them just because you happen to rock up to a bar. Because again, like Rose said, when somebody's from a certain social class, they are able to spot when other people are also part of that social class because there will be social cues, especially if you come from a background, a working class background, that you're just not going to know because you don't hang around enough rich people. So just hanging around rich people is not the way to break into that inner circle. It's probably one of the worst ways. Like the way to, just like Rose said, the way to actually attempt, not guaranteed, but attempt to break into these circles is if you actually level yourself up so you have a meaningful reason to be there. So as opposed to being a waitress at the golf club, you know, for example, you get yourself into a position where, you know, you can network with the people playing golf. And that's the main difference. Exactly. But I mean, in some respects, it's tough because the, the way you almost break in is by anything is really the same way you would do with anything else. Is like you have to be exceptional in some way. You have to corner the market on whatever your skill or expertise is, right? So in America, it's somewhat flexible to be like our class system is flexible, but to a point, and it depends on the industry. I feel like there's some industries the wealthy have basically quarantined for themselves. So like investment banking or I mean, it's the entire like Nepo baby argument, right? Like investment banking, people have made said the same thing about like a lot of these positions in the film industry that you have to know somebody or your parent has to be in the film industry for you to break into the film industry. A lot of people have said the same thing about What's the word? Other like white collar prestige jobs, right? Yeah. If you look at anything to do with like humanitarian causes like the UN, the WHO, diplomatic service, all of these super cushy jobs, you basically need either like a family connection or wealthy parents who can support you whilst you work for free or intern on a very, very low wage to get into those professions. Because if you look at, for example, the UN, they do unpaid internships in places like London and Geneva, some of the most expensive cities in the world. If you don't have that financial background or that social background to be able to basically, you know, live and work for free in one of these cities, it's impossible to break in, literally impossible. And this is why if you look at because I'm a bit of a loser, like I like to look up the ambassadors for my country. If you look them up, you'll often find a lot of them had parents who were diplomats, for example. It's quite rare that you see a diplomat who's come from a truly, truly working class background and made it to the top of the diplomatic service. It's quite rare, for example. So yeah, that's just something to watch out for. Again, I'm not saying don't pursue hypergamy, but also be realistic. And if you are a working class girly, you know, like myself, I consider myself to be very, very working class. Understand that you need to raise your baseline, essentially, before you start attempting hypergamy. Because if you don't, you just end up being massively taken advantage of. Because unfortunately, as is, a lot of these men that you're looking to target, they will just not take you seriously. And one of the messages that I'm getting really concerned about 
is these spaces where they are encouraging, you know, basically teenage girls who are 18, 19, and convincing them that if they just say the right things, they'll be able to hoodwink a guy who's two, three times their age. And that's just not true. Because again, it's sort of the blind leading the blind. A lot of the people giving this advice, they've not been in a situation that is genuinely hypergamous. And if they have, even they themselves, they're not fully aware of the pitfalls, such as, you know, how to protect yourself financially. So you get the most out of it if it goes wrong, for example. Exactly. And speaking of the financial point as well, you know, let's say you've leveled up and you are now in your hypergamous happy relationship. A lot of women sleep on the fact that you are still very financially vulnerable. A good slash bad example of this is the supermodel, I want to say Paulina Poriskova, I think that's how I pronounce it. She found this out the hard way when she married a guy who was a lot older than her. I think he was a famous uh, rock star and I think they were about to separate or separated at the time of his death. And she basically looked after him like for years whilst he was sick and then he died. And it was only after he passed away that she found out he had basically cut her out of his will. So, and she's done interviews about where she was blindsided and devastated by it. But it just goes to show that even if you are in a relationship, especially if you're in a relationship with a guy who is much wealthier than you are, you know, you need to ensure that your financial interests are protected. Don't assume that these rich men will have your best interests at heart. Because like I always tell women, wealthy people don't tend to become wealthy because they're generous and forthcoming with their money. They tend to sometimes basically be stingy or they know how to manipulate people in situations in order to be able to financially line their own pockets. That's how they become rich. I'm not saying hate the player because it's the system ultimately but it is what it is and so you need to act accordingly as well so some of the things you can do is if you aren't planning on you know working which I would always say just like always earn your own income even if you don't have to be working but it's always good to have money that only you can access and that is just for you but let's say you want to take time out to raise children then make sure that he is doing things like paying into a private pension for you because that's one of the areas, you know, where there's a gap in, at least in the UK, there tends to be a pensions gap where retirement age comes round. There tends to be a huge uh, gap between the amount of, you know, money in the pensions of men and women. And that's purely because like, when women take time out of the workforce to raise children, they stop paying into their pension. So if you are going to stop working, the guy should really compensate you for that and be paying into your private pension number one, and ensure that you have accounts that only you can access. So I remember when I was working in retail banking and I saw a couple and the woman, it seemed like she'd won the hypergamy game because she came in and was doing a transaction. And then oh, she was like, oh, my allowance is due today. And I even thought maybe it was like two, 300 quid from her husband. It was like five grand a month. And she'd amassed like 30 grand in her current account. And I was like, damn sis, you've won. Because also he was transferring that money into an account in just her name. And that's really legally important. Joint accounts is, you know, open access. Like he could drain the entire bank account tomorrow and leave you with nothing. But if it's just in your account, he can't transact on that account because it's just in your name as well. So that's really, really important to have an account that only you can access and that he's paying into if you are not working for example. And perhaps I could do a whole episode on this because I've seen this play out in various relationships close to me, is that there is a difference between 
a guy paying for stuff uh, for you and investing in you. And I would say the difference is, is he investing or is he paying for something that doesn't directly benefit him? So let's say, for example, your average, you know, sugar relationship, he might pay for you to go on holiday or he might buy you designer clothes and designer bags. But ultimately, this stuff is really feeding his ego because generally speaking, in these sugar relationships, if he's paying for you to go on holiday, he's usually coming with you. He's not just saying, okay, here's 10 grand. You can go to Bora Bora with your girlfriend. So don't say that. Whereas if a guy is investing in you, he'll pay for your education. You know, he'll pay for, I don't know, support you in opening a business. He will invest in stuff that may not necessarily directly benefit him, but will contribute to your own growth and prospects as well, independent of him. So a good example of this is one of my uncles. He's been married to my aunt for well over 20 years now. He paid for her undergraduate degree when he himself was an intern. That's quite common in Nigeria, actually, where men support their wives or future wives through school. He paid for her master's and he's paid for her PhD as well. So even if that relationship was to end, she will be able to take those degrees with her and, you know, make something of herself as opposed to if he just bought her a load of designer bags or, you know, paid for her BBLs or whatever. She can't do anything with that ultimately. So yes, but that could be a whole episode like in and of itself because this episode could get quite dark and I don't really want it to be but yeah but those are just some of the pitfalls and you know the things to watch out for if you are planning on being hypergamous as well and I'd just like to end to wrap up the episode we're just questioning if <laughs> based on what we know about the average man kind of looks like Mark Zuckerberg it doesn't wash his ass generally useless you know lacks education isn't earning as much money anymore does hypergamy for women even exist it does in a sense that like yes you can level up your life in order to marry a man who might have been uh, less accessible to you otherwise, right? Meaning like get an education so that you can date other men who are educated, put yourself into the right profession or location or wherever you want to go with the type of men that you want to date. Like you can absolutely invest in yourself and invest in the life that you want to create and get it by self-improvement and quote unquote, marry up, I should say. Meaning like, I guess the question would be, are you trying to marry a guy who also did that? Or are you trying to marry a guy who was already born with those things? Sometimes I feel like it's harder to just break into an entrenched social class of people who've always had, but you might be able to put yourself in a different class and meet other similarly situated people. It's not impossible, but I feel like a lot of these hypergamy gurus, like, I mean, if you ever seen some of the old Sex in the City episodes where it's like all these women just dressed to the nines, like going to hang out at bars, trying to get with like finance bros, finance bros who were partners at whatever bank or legal firm or whatever. And these guys are probably on their second and third divorce. Uh, their first wife was someone of their social class. Let's keep it a buck. Their second wife might have been that as well. And then their third wife is after they've already been cleaned out by their first two marriages is what you're going to get, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's not that I'm saying that it's impossible. It's just that, like, I feel like a lot of working class girls get slotted into like the sex work track and not knowing it because they believe all these hypergamy gurus keep, keep telling them just be feminine and cute and, you know, whatever, rest in your femininity and shit. I'm like, girl, if that was all it took, then like, why isn't anybody like, it's so much more than that. Because like, it's not even about being like, quote, unquote, the total package, but you have to match their social circle, like you have to be able to go into an audience and speak intelligently and not sound like a total idiot. 
all those soft skills matter, right? Because the thing is, if you don't have them, you'll stick out like a sore thumb in some of those circles and therefore affect their brand. And for these guys, like in order to maintain their power and wealth, branding is everything. Yes. Yeah. But it's really hard to understand those nuances. Like we've talked about this in the career series and the bonus content is that like, listen, there's a lot of things, especially me coming from a more working class background that I just didn't understand about the working world. Quite frankly, I'm never going to be like an old money wasp, right? No matter how much I try to dress like one or act like one or speak like one, at some point, there's going to be diminishing returns such that I'm going to try really hard to act like something and someone I'm not. And it's going to be so inauthentic and hard to imitate, right? So you have to find a balance between who you are, and then the place that you want to put yourself in. So I mean, there's definitely financial benefits. But like the question then becomes like, where's the trade off, right? There's going to be a place where you start to feel like there's diminishing returns of like trying to fit into a guy's social circle just to get paid, you know, and And once again, because like social classes here are a little bit fluid compared to other places, like there's also women that are trying to like date up with like professional athletes, right? Like the type of women who are basically like Instagram models and actually maybe real like fashion models and stuff like that's their peer group, right? The stereotype of athletes and artists like uh, dating and marrying models is uh, fairly true, but you're taking two people who are probably don't have education who are in the entertainment industry where uh, looks are very, very important. So then like, yeah, they want to date other people who are going to raise their brand. When you look at a lot of them, a lot of them still end up with like women that knew them prior to them being famous, like their high school sweetheart, etc. So even then it's like hypergamy, it depends on what kind of social circle you want to be in. If you want to be in entertainment, it's one thing. If you want to be in investment banking, it's one thing. If you want to be in tech, it's another. If you want to be in politics, it's another, right? So consider the audience, consider where you want to go, and then who you are, and to the extent that you want to fit into that circle. So that is our episode on hypergamy. Let us know what you think on this rather controversial, in quotation marks, topic. Yeah, I think hypergamy is always a good thing. I wouldn't date a guy who is doing, I guess, you know, less than me, because what's the point? But yeah, let me know what you think. Yeah, fuck that. Why would you do that? I even take what I said earlier in the episode when I was trying to be diplomatic, Savannah, and be like, there's very few benefits. There's zero benefit to women dating men who are doing worse than them. Zero benefit. In fact, it's probably a negative, generally speaking. So, so don't do it. And that's our show. Thanks for listening, queens. Check us out on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy. Also on the website, thefemaledatingstrategy.com and on Twitter at femdatstrat for as long as Twitter lasts. (laughs) And yeah, let us know what you think about our first conversation of this show about some of the transition aspirations of this podcast and email us at contact at thefemaledatingstrategy. Thanks for listening, queens, and for all you scrotes out there. Just because you have money doesn't mean anybody wants to touch you. Don't be bitter, just get better. And I'm mad. Facts. Bye. (laughs) 